This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Monday, May 10. Just ahead, when a mall company says it isn't a mall company, the reimagining of Simon Property Group. And without web cookies, will Trade Desk find its cookie jar empty? And we'll drill down to the business model of Spotify with a star money manager. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and TuneIn. Hit that subscribe button and follow us and catch every show. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and connect with us on our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what companies you want us to talk about. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to tell you the business story behind some stocks on the move. Joining me, as always, producer extraordinaire Isaac Webster. Isaac, what's going on in the world of business today? Today. Here are the three most important things you need to know about the world of business today. Tech shares fell, dragging the S&P and NASDAQ lower. The Dow managed to rise to a record at one point in the session, topping 35,000. But in the end, the Dow closed lower. But if you look at those one-year results, the Dow is up 43%, the S&P is up 42%, and the NASDAQ is higher by 45% over the last 12 months. Yeah, I guess what's notable there is that the, the, you know, the NASDAQ down 25 the Dow basically flat. So it really shows you don't always see that separation on any given day, but today you definitely saw it. Uh, and just moments ago, online gaming site Roblox reported its first quarterly results as a public company. The company saw a huge jump in user engagement in the first quarter, users putting a collective 9.7 billion hours into the game. In Q1, the company reported that it had 42, over 42 million daily active users. That's up 79% year-over-year, thanks in part to a 111% growth in daily active users over the age of 13. Now, Corey, you've got some house members on Roblox. Is that right? <laughs> I have four teenagers. The youngest of them is, uh, is on Roblox. The other one's not so much. Uh, but it is interesting that they've got about call it one-eighth the size of an audience that Twitter has and have built it in the course of just a couple of years. Twitter's been at it for, what, 10, 15 years? Um, Dramatic. Very dramatic. Now, speaking of dramatic, uh, the Pentagon is considering ending the Jedi cloud computing project. It's tied up in litigation from Amazon and faces criticism from lawmakers. You may remember the Pentagon granted a $10 billion 10-year contract to Microsoft to enhance its AI capacity in 2019. But Amazon said, wait a minute. (laughs) Of course they said that because they didn't get the deal. 
Hey, what about the Colonial Pipeline? I know you said you had three stories, but I want to know what's up with the, the latest oh, yeah. on that that, well, that slowdown. Uh, well, slowdown. I mean, it's just kind of an amazing story that I think has a big economic impact with every hour it continues. Yeah. So the latest, as we record this, last weekend's hack of the Colonial Pipeline, the FBI suspects a crime group named Darkside based in Eastern Europe for the cyber attack on that pipeline. Those hackers have no known connection to foreign governments. The hack has led, of course, to the shutdown of the main pipeline supplying gasoline to the U.S. East Coast. And the Colonial Pipeline is aiming to restore full fuel service by the end of the, by the weekend, I should say. Why wouldn't they aim to fix it today? Because they can't. The thing about the (laughs) hackers in Eastern Europe, I don't want to go too deep into it, but uh, one of the things we know about the way that the Russian government has dealt with hackers is they have allowed Eastern European hackers to exist uh, with, so that they can co-opt them when they need to, so that they have used them, for example, when they invaded Crimea. They got all those hackers who were just doing petty uh, theft and, and crime all over the world. They sort of got them all to work together in concert to shut down um, uh, uh, whether it was pipelines or other things in uh in uh, Ukraine as they were invading. So they work as a sort of federation of bad guys that all come together when Russia tells them to come together. At least that's what some of the experts in the world of cybersecurity say about that, uh, those quote-unquote unaffiliated hackers. So, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, I want to start with energy transfer. Energy transfer, that trades under ET. Shares moved slightly higher on Monday. They're up 26% over the last 12 months. What's the story with energy transfer? So, and again, 26% underperforming the general market here. But uh, I was thinking of energy transfer because I was thinking about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown, which is sending up gas prices in the East Coast. Uh, Energy transfer is the king of pipelines. Energy transfer has an $89 billion enterprise value. Uh, Now, they're nearing completion of a pipeline that probably would have made this Colonial Pipeline thing a lot less uh, impactful because they've got a pipeline called Mariner East they've been working on for years that's supposed to take uh, oil and gas from essentially western Pennsylvania, move it all the way to the East Coast and to New Jersey. They're spending about $9 billion to do that. But like I said, it's not done yet. If it was done, it would have relieved a lot of the pressure from the Colonial Pipeline shutdown. But I went back and listened to the conference call for the end of the March quarter, the first quarter for energy transfer. And I was just really surprised, Isaac, on how bullish they are about what's happening in the economy and what's happening with their pipeline business. Not just for the strong March quarter they reported, but for April, a month where they often just won't say anything. They were saying April was so strong, particularly how much gas was flowing through all of their their gathering lines and their pipelines, especially out of Texas and Louisiana and everywhere. Co-CEO Mackie McRae liked using the word record. The word record uh, uh, falls into almost everything we're working on. I'll just walk through a few. For example, you heard earlier, we're at record volumes, all-time volumes in the Permian Basin. We've never processed more gas than we are right now. The volumes, the residue volumes coming out of the Fort Worth Basin that we move about 25% of is at all-time highs. It's about 13 to 13.1 BCF, which is right at or higher than the the highest level we've ever had in the Permian Basin. Uh, Somebody reported here recently that Haynesville, the most gas that's ever been produced out of uh, Haynesville was produced in uh, the month of uh, April. And you go on and on. If you look at at Mexico, the record, we're almost 7 BCF, about 30% of that volume moves through our assets. Our two 42-inch pipelines in West Texas are now moving 1.4 BCF a day, where they've been significantly less than that in the past. Those are much 
higher volumes than we expected. Uh, and it kind of goes on and on. If you look at uh, on our even on our uh, refined product, we uh, uh, on our terminals, we now are at uh, higher levels than we've been since uh, the end of, of 2019. Uh, our throughput on our in, uh, refined product pipelines uh, are, are up about 70% from the lows of last uh, summer. So there's a lot of aspects that go into this of why not we're very bullish on not only this year, but for many years to come. So I was just, you know, that that's banging the table there, talking about the results they haven't reported. And I'm curious what it's going to mean for other oil and gas companies. Uh, I'm teeing some up for us to look at over the course of the next few weeks to see if we really do, do see those results from the drillers, uh, the E&P companies out of exploration production companies, I should say, out of West Texas in the Permian, in the in the Haynesville in East Texas and uh, uh, Louisiana. Um you know, that was that sounded to me like it was just super bullish about what's happening in terms of demand. Corey, what is your next drill down? Hey, let's take a look at Simon Property Group. Simon Property Group, that trades under SPG. Shares rose just a tad higher on Monday, and they're higher by 130 percent in a year. What's going on with Simon Property Group? Well, uh, the company reports earnings tomorrow for the first quarter, and I will be looking at this one really carefully after the close tomorrow. Um, so this is the giant mall operator, right? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. Uh, the company uh, is supposed to report earnings tomorrow, but uh, they now want us to believe that they're not really a mall company after all. Isaac, when's the last time you went to a shopping mall? Uh, it's been a few weeks. I go occasionally to Century City Mall here in L.A. Which is kind of indoor-outdoor a little bit. It's an outdoor. It's an outdoor mall. It's a, it's a Westfield mall. It's where we used to work, right? That's right. Right next. To, right next door. The Bloomberg office was right next door. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, um, people have generally not been back in malls, maybe a little bit, but of course there was a long-term trend to move away from the mall uh, long before COVID happened, and right. then you had this this Simon Properties really doubling down on a lot of their mall properties. Um, but when mall became a dirty word back last uh, May or so, when the company was reporting their first set of results after COVID hit, there was an amazing back and forth between the analyst, Eric Johnson of Deutsche Bank, uh, uh, right in the heart of the pandemic about the whole that uh, COVID shutdowns had subjected shopping malls to. And amazingly, Simon Property Group CEO David Simon took this argumentative tack about his shopping mall company saying it wasn't actually a mall company at all. Here's Simon on that call. Derek, when you say subsector, what what are you referring to? I just mean malls in general have have really taken a a heavy uh, toll. Derek, we are not a mall company. We are predominantly a retail real estate company, but we're not, uh, you know, I wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination you know, consider us a, a mall company. So, you know, that's essentially how I would a- answer. I mean, we are focused on retail real estate, but, you know, we are not we are not a mall company. And I think we've been consistent on that for, for years. By any stretch of the imagination. Okay, let me read to you from their annual report, which has come out since then. This is from their annual report. Gotcha. Quote, we own and develop and manage premier shopping, dining, entertainment, and mixed-use destinations, which consist primarily of malls. Wow. They go on to say they also have premium outlets and the mills. What is the mills? 
What does that mean? It was a collection of 38 shopping malls that they bought in 2007. So oh. I, it's just – this is just so like malls, Orwellian. Malls, malls. <laughs> Maybe this worked better uh, when we had more <laughs> Orwellian ideas all around us. But, uh, you know, this is a mall operator. That's what Simon Property Group does. Um, now, they're going to report earnings tomorrow. Now, a year ago in the first quarter, they did uh, $1.4 billion in sales and $1.43 a share. Now they're expected to do $1.1 billion in sales, but two twenty-seven dollars a share in profit. So we'll see if they're able to take less revenues and turn it into more profits. I don't really care about what Wall Street's expectations are, but I'm very interested in the progress this business is having, this mall operator that, you know, doesn't operate malls. Corey, I got to ask before we move on, did anyone on that call call him out and say, wait a minute, what are you, are you trying to say you're not a mall operator? No, no, there's sheep. <laughs> They're just sheep. Corey, what's your next drill down? The Trade Desk. The Trade Desk. TTD. TTD shares tumbled over 26% Monday. Wow. what They're still higher by 60% in a year. But why? What was behind today's uh, share sell-off? Well, the short answer is the company reported earnings and did not offer any guidance for the uh, subsequent uh, quarters including mm-hmm. the one we're in right now. They just said, we, we, we don't know how things are going to turn out. Now, let me give you some context here. So about six weeks ago, Google made an announcement. Google, I said, made an announcement that stunned the digital advertising world when they said they were going to get rid of ad tracking cookies. That had been in the works. But they said that there wouldn't be uh, third-party cookies allowed either, uh, that there would be no alternate identifiers to track people as they browse the web. And so that looked like it was really bad news for the trade desk. So what does the trade desk do? Well, they sell digital ads, and they rely okay. massively on the use of cookies. So gotcha. um, they, this is how they sell them. They're, they're focused on the, on the buy side, but they really, you know, the, the CEO came out when Google had this news, and he put out a blog post, and he said, you know, uh, uh, the big change at Google would not hurt the company. He said, cookies don't matter so much as the fastest-growing areas of digital advertising ecosystem, such as connected TVs. But when the company announced results today, as I said, they said the future is just too hard to predict um, because they can't gauge consent rates. Consent rate? What does that mean? So consent rates are are how often users will give consent before sharing their digital information. So, you know, you've seen Mm -hmm. this a little bit with the changes in iOS and with Google where um, the user has to say, I'm willing to look at ads, I'm willing to have cookies on my machine. Uh, Let me back up a little bit, talk about how the trade desk business works. So... They look at 12 million ads or more per second. So, you know, when you log on a web page and it takes just a second to download and then all the ads show up around the page? Well, what's really happening is companies like the Trade Desk are auctioning off you. And they're saying to advertisers, this type of person is going onto a web page right now. He fills all these characteristics. We think he lives here, has this amount of income, has this many children, likes to do these kinds of things for fun. We've got a thousand people like that. What will you pay for? So that's how that business works right now. Well, if you can't tell who those people are because they did not give permission, they didn't opt in, then the trade desk model doesn't work as it once did. Nonetheless, uh, in today's conference call, uh, CEO Green said he thinks that things will come back because he thinks that the entire nature of the internet and how people interact with it is about to change. What I predict is that long-term, people are going to opt in, uh, uh, especially for things like Facebook and Twitter 
and, and, and these apps that have been staples, they will better explain the quid pro quo of the internet and then consumers are going to opt in. In fact, to our business as it relates to the IDFA changes, we have seen no material uh, change in spend as the result of the IDFA changes. And that's in part because of what I was saying before, which is we have the ability to look at, at 12 million ads per second. If you change slightly which apps get consent and which don't, uh, uh, but that opt-in continues to, uh, to happen, that we then just choose from a different set of impressions which ones are the most effective for our advertisers, but we've not seen any material change. So, sorry, IDFA is, is the idea uh, identifier for advertising. So it's essentially a cookie-like thing for tracking and identifying a, a user. Um, look, his no notion that users are suddenly going to be told by Facebook and Twitter, hey, don't you want to see ads? It's good for you. And that they'll then say yes. Or his notion that advertisers will pay, if they advertisers have half as much information, they'll pay double for the people they can reach. That may be the case. Uh, maybe they're right to drop guidance because they don't know for a fact if it's going to happen. But that seems like it's a, a, an enormous change in how the internet works and how one company is just kind of betting that people will go back to uh, giving up all their information for free. All right, up next, James Chalkmock is going to join us from Clockwise Capital Miami to talk about Spotify and the business model behind that download giant. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine which consumes 40,000-plus investor events annually across 10,000-plus global equities. Learn more at ERA.com. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. Okay, let's do some drilling down on Spotify. Some of you may be listening to us on Spotify at this very moment, but the company we're going to look at with James Chalkmock of Clockwise Capital joining us from Miami. James, uh, good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So Spotify, um, uh, audio only, really? Who does that? Oh, wait, that, that'd, be, that'd be the Business Podcast Network. And Spotify. Um, uh, let me take it from the 30,000-foot view. What's the business model here for Spotify? Well, the business model falls into a couple buckets, but essentially it is driving overall engagement on the platform through their monthly active users, through their free offering and listening through desktop and whatnot. Secondly, converting those monthly active users, MAUs, into premium subscribers where you pay a monthly fee and you can listen to a whole host of content in an unlimited fashion um, across any devices that uh, are internet connected. And then the third is um, their ad supported business and what they're trying to grow via the, um, uh, the podcast efforts that they're in, heavily investing in. Yeah, and, and they, they list uh, in their quarterly report, they list sort of two. They don't describe anything as free. They describe their ad-supported listeners and their non-ad, their premium listeners. So there's, you know, there's, no, there's no free here. I think that they look at the, uh, the, the listeners who aren't um, paying uh, a, weekly, a monthly subscription as listeners who are paying by listening to ads. 
Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. But also, any type of medium that's ad-supported is essentially the same way. You know, any anytime you watch television, you know, it's all ad-supported businesses. Any content that you read online is generally ad-supported. It's free in the sense that it's there's no explicit cost to the consumer, but you know, someone's got to pay for the content. And yet there are a lot of uh, premium subscribers. The premium subscribers tend to run about 42% of the business every quarter. Uh, in the last quarter, that was 158 million uh, premium subscribers out of the 356 million total. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're growing nicely. You know, their monthly users totaled uh, the 356 million was up 24%. The premium subscribers were up 21%. You know, so they're converting at a healthy rate. They're growing their user base at a healthy rate. And as they get into more and more of the family plans, as as subscribers uh, upgrade their subscriptions, you know, which you can get up to six accounts on a family plan, it just makes the product even stickier. Don't uh, I so know it? Over, over the <laughs> you talk to me with my giant family. Yes, I know. <laughs> so it's interesting with these guys and the way that they've grown this, because yes, they have grown both. The total advertiser count, or, or sorry, subscriber count, but also the premium subscriber count at a very healthy rate consistently. Yeah, they're growing, but the opportunity is also growing. You know, you we're talking about the thirty thousand foot view. What Spotify wants to do is all own all things audio. You know, to be a true audio platform. So any point of contact that you have uh, with Spotify and and. Uh, uh, and regardless of device that you're trying to connect to, you know, now they're working with the cars, they're, they're integrating with Facebook, um, the podcast initiatives that it, with their open platform to allow content to be streamed uh, on independent podcast players. You know, it's all about owning all things audio and, and the industry is growing and, and they're the ones leading the charge. And I think what has made them so attractive and being able to aggregate so much supply on their platform is how much they put content creators first, which is something I don't think you can really say of companies like Apple, which are also trying to carve a name for themselves in the space. Well, there's some pretty interesting developments in the sort of world of audio, not the least of which is radio uh, seems to be in a big contraction really for the first time uh, ever. I mean, since the beginning of radio, um, you know, radio has held on against all other mediums and maybe until COVID and until people were not commuting and not in the car so much. But there are some amazing statistics that I came upon, you know, when we're putting together this company, which is the the, the contraction in the number of radios in homes. Uh, just 12 years ago or 13 years ago in 2008, 3% of American homes did not have a home radio. Now that's 33%. And among millennials, it's well over 60%. People don't have radios in their homes anymore. They have smart speakers. And I think they're listening to on-demand music and podcasts. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good statistic. I didn't have those. Um, I thought yeah, you were the think, analyst. I'm just the guy who talks for a living. <laughs> I did not have the radio penetration numbers by cohort like you did. So that was impressive. The, the, the thing about Spotify <laughs> is that you know, they're growing the industry. When you look at the recording industry in the United States, it actually bottomed out in 2015. But what, uh, with the launch of 4G uh, and the iPhone 6 and the advanced 4G networks and Spotify really leading the charge in audio, you know, the recording industry has boomed ever since bottoming out um, of five, six years prior. So, um, you know, streaming is really the future of audio and, and Spotify is ubiquitous uh, with all things streaming. So, 
um, you know, radio, you look at a company like Sirius, Sirius XM, that's a $35 billion enterprise value company. Spotify is slightly north of that at $45 billion, but are you telling me that Sirius XM should be worth somewhat remotely close to what uh, Spotify is, given their growth, varying growth trajectories? You know, I don't think so, I think. Yeah, I mean, the growth numbers are huge, right? As you, as you mentioned, 21, 22% user mm-hmm. growth. Um, I thought it was interesting um, when they first got into the podcast business, and you kind of it didn't. It seemed like they were kind of just fooling around with it, but then you they, you, they came out in a, in a conference call and said that that the conversion rate of uh, ad supported to premium was so much higher for podcast listeners that once a listener starts to listen to a podcast on Spotify, they very quickly convert to someone who's willing to pay every month for Spotify. Yeah, absolutely, because you build a you know a relationship with the. Uh the, the podcasters that you're listening to. You know, these are people that you're actively seeking out and, um, you know, want want to follow. And, uh, you know, that that relationship, that direct connection between the content creator and the listener is something that is um, is, is very sticky. So I think- Sticky, I, think, I, was, I was waiting for that word sticky. It was coming, <laughs> it was coming. <laughs> so, so I think podcasts are a great way to help improve that conversion rate and also improve the retention and churn rates uh, for the subscriber base. So I, I think it makes total sense that, you know, when people to listen to a podcast, it's a very conscious effort to do so, you know, relative to putting on just a playlist and having it on in the background. And they've made some very big investments in podcasts in terms of content, acquiring uh, the Ringer Network for $197 million reportedly, uh, and a bunch of other, uh, Joe Rogan, most uh, uh, famously, the, probably the best uh, known podcast, the highest rated podcast out there. They really have gone after a lot of content and, and have spent handsomely to do so. Right. Not only are they throwing a ton of money at acquiring the content, but also they're throwing a ton of money at helping the content creators that you know they're onboarding. You know, they've acquired a company uh, anchor to help them uh, ag- uh, help content creators create um, podcasts and to increase the supply of podcasts on the platform. And they're helping them monetize with their ad insertion efforts so that not only will you be able to uh, generate ad income on Spotify, but you can host your podcasts elsewhere and use the Spotify targeting technology ad targeting technology, as well as the Spotify audience network, which is not too dissimilar to what Facebook does um, in, in targeting the, the groups of users that you'd like to get in front of and, um, and, and generating income for content creators that way. So the fact that Daniel Eck, the CEO, who I think is brilliant, you know, really thinks about the supply side and, and incentivizing the supply side to work with Spotify, I think is once again to bring back to Sticky is what makes it super sticky for the supply side content creators as well. Ever tell you the first time I met Daniel Eck or heard of Spotify? Ten years ago, this is a true story. I just come back from Las Vegas for something. I can't remember. We had, we had just launched Bloomberg West, I think, and um, uh, I get someone says, "Hey, you got to come to this party tonight." I'm like, "I'm exhausted. I just got back from Vegas." No, it's this new company, Spotify. They're launching. Okay, great. Who cares? No, you got to meet the CEO. Besides, they're having a concert. Who's at the concert? I can't tell you. So I show up at this address and I walk in and I see uh, this list on the door. I'd mistakenly gone to the back door and I saw the entrance for the bands that were there. The bands were The Killers, Jane's Addiction, and Snoop Dogg in this secret 
concert that Sean mm-hmm. Parker was holding. Sean Parker was money behind Spotify and early on with Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg was at the party in a T-shirt like in the mosh pit dancing in front of Snoop, which was a sight to behold. There were bottles wow. of tequila on every uh, table for the journalists who were showing up. It was um, it was insane. But I, I went backstage and I uh, with a friend and got to meet Daniel Eck, the CEO, and he's – He's an odd guy. He's very um, humble, it seems, but very self-confident and just really sharp. And when I was listening to the Spotify conference call, what, two weeks ago, I I couldn't help but sort of hear that same guy who really seems to have a grand vision of all things audio and taking care of the people who create that audio. Yeah, he's he's unwavering. I think that's where the confidence comes from. He's unwavering in his vision. And... um, and, and really building an ecosystem, building what he calls a creative economy um, that didn't exist prior. You know, he's creating a, a new industry for content creators to to um, to be able to market themselves and promote themselves and build relationships with subscribers and customers and and um, and 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 and, ha- and help them be discovered in a way that wasn't possible just a, even just a few years ago. And you know, we've seen what social media has been able to do for um, people to, to uh, you know, be found. Um, and I think that uh, Daniel can do the same with Spotify for on the audio front, for sure. How much can they govern customer acquisitions, right? So one of the things I noticed in the last call was, uh, so you, you mentioned it grown about 22%, which is a fantastic number in terms of the growth. The conversion rate has stayed about the same, which is, the, that's, is to say the percentage of um, listeners who are paying the premium as opposed to being ad supported. But mm-hmm. what I thought was really interesting in the quarter they just reported, I don't know that anyone mentioned the conference call, was that the, the sales and marketing expense fell really dramatically. It fell from like, I want to say 18% to just 9% of revenue. So they spent a lot less money to acquire new subscribers, but the acquisitions continue to pace. I think it's going to be lumpy. Um, You know, I think they have to continue to stay in investment mode. Um, You know, there's going to be, you know, choppiness across all those metrics because we are so early in the game and they're also trying to figure out, um, you know, how they're going to uh, come out of COVID here. You know, I think that was also some of the lumpiness associated with the MAU numbers because they pulled forward so much demand um, during the pandemic that, um, you know, it causes some visibility issues as you look out in near-term quarters. But I think longer term, yes, they will be able to get leverage across all those lines as well as leverage in their gross margin, which is kind of their biggest cost in paying out the licensing fees to to the labels um, as they um, augment the original content on their platform. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, leave it to you to make it sound good. I mean, they did put up <laughs> only 3% user growth, which is the worst they've put up in any year, I think, ever, certainly in the last two or three. 3% sequentially. Yeah, that's not great. It's off of a large base. <laughs> But I mean, well, well that's the, the point, day, though. But wait, wait, that's the question, right? Is the base so large that we can expect three percent sequential growth every every quarter, or can they get back to where they were at, at you know, four, five, six, seven percent sequential growth? I think as as long as they continue to do what they're doing, they'll be able to grow in the single digit rates, maintain their conversion rates, the premium, and 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 continue to improve churn 
which will end up trickling down to the bottom line. So Now, you mentioned the costs, the licensing costs. Um, when this company first went public and I read the red herring, I did think that they were doomed because they were paying so much more for the content on their platform than others. There's been a movement lately, maybe you can uh, catch us up on this, to for Apple and Spotify, uh, if you can call two people, two, two companies, movers, uh, both companies have kind of come out with statements to musicians to say how much they're paying for content and how much they can expect that their label is getting paid for that content. But how do their costs compare to Apple and, and how might that change over time? Yeah, so essentially what uh, Spotify is doing is saying it's free for a couple of years to content creators with the exception of paying for the credit card processing fees. Which is oh, that's the, pod, three, the podcast stuff, right? Right. So 3% Sponsor plus, podcast. plus uh, 30 cents. And then you have on the uh, uh, a couple of years out, 2023, they'll charge just 5% versus Apple, you know, which will charge 30% in the first year and 15% thereafter. So the economics are not too dissimilar between the two companies. Um, on the streaming side, you know, Apple is um, is paying, I think, slightly more, but um, uh, on a kind of per stream basis. But Spotify is actually streaming more. Um, so in ag- in absolute, you know, Spotify should be able to help the the artists and musicians, on yeah, the mu- musician side, music side, and then on the podcast on the uh, podcast creators on the podcast side earn more absolute dollars over the long term. Yeah, I think Apple came out and said, uh, hey, musicians, we're paying one cent per stream. And mm-hmm. Spotify said something a little more oblique, but it's, it looks like it's less money per stream. But as you mentioned, there are more streams happening on Spotify. It, it, precisely. So the, at the end of the day, where are the content creators going to make money is ultimately, this will ultimately decide which platform that they build the closer relationship with. And in turn, which drives that virtuous cycle where the, the audiences will migrate to. So, I mean, that's why, unless, I mean, the bottom line is what can spot, stop Spotify? It's really Apple, but if Apple decides that, okay, we're going to allow um, our content creators to effectively control the relationships with the customers, Apple, I'm going to step back and say, okay, you guys control it. And I'm going to take inferior economics to what we're charging now. With absent Apple saying that, Spotify has an open road ahead. Yeah. James Jockman, Clockwise Capital, always a pleasure. How can uh, our listeners follow Clockwise Capital and your thoughts? Well, we, we post regular content on Medium, on the Clockwise Capital uh, page on Medium and um, on Twitter. Great stuff, James. Uh, such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us all the way from Miami. James Chalkmuck from Clockwise Capital up next on The Drill Down. The Bite. Now, I told you that Spotify has 58% of its customers getting the service for free or ad-supported. Well, that number has been remarkably steady. How steady? I'm going to tell you exactly how much that number, that 58% number, has changed over the last two years. Let me just give you a hint. It ain't much. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of ERA's AI-powered tools. Work faster and smarter with ERA.com. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, yes, Spotify, as well as Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Please hit that subscribe button or follow us and catch every show. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at Drill Down Pod. Link up with us on LinkedIn. 
and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. All right, I told you that Spotify has 58% of its customers getting the service for free and ad-supported, that is. Well, look, that number has been so steady over time. How steady? So glad you asked, Isaac. Would you believe, (laughs) on average, that a number has only changed 0.4% on any given quarter over the last two years? How do they do that? I think that they just govern it by how much they're advertising the service. So they bring in enough sort of free people. They can govern that by how much they market and advertise subscriptions. And once they hit those numbers, they shut it down. And I think that when you saw their subscription number, or sorry, their sales and marketing number go down to 9% from about 18% the prior quarter, I think it kind of suggests they got what they needed. And so they closed the open door because they were at the numbers that they wanted to hit. I think it shows that Daniel Ek has his company, uh, has his hand on the tiller. Uh, to use a Scandinavian reference. He has a hand on the tiller there up in Sweden and really has a great control of his company and all the, the, the things that make it work. All right, well, thanks for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Isaac Webster. And every weekday, we will give you the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Of course, you can hear on all your favorite podcast platforms and online on the, on the socials at Drill Down Pod. Check us out and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening to us. Thanks.